0: Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode is
1: our discussion episode for The Blue Flame of Vengeance, written by Robert E. Howard
0: around 1930. And since we've already gone through the recap, I think we can just get right into our conversation about what this story is all about or what's going on in this story and look, the centerpiece of our discussion, as I said last time, is going to be the question of whether killing baddies is morally good, right? We're going to take a look at Solomon Kane's final speech, but I want to get there by way of first talking about genre. There are 16 Solomon Kane stories. I've only read 3 of them. That that includes this one, that includes the Blue Flame of Vengeance. But this is at least my understanding anyway is that this is the only one of them that doesn't contain some kind of supernatural element. And well, this error on my part, it's totally my fault, but this error on my part is not nearly as embarrassing as when I had us read a genuine rom-com by <laughs> William Hobachin uh Still, on, on the face of it, right, this story seems to be just a bit of historical fiction without any real emphasis on something weird or strange. But but I do wonder, Brandon, if you find actually some weird fiction elements here. And, you know, whether or not you do, I'm also interested in what genre labels or genre tags maybe you would give this story. That's an excellent
1: question. I didn't see too much weird fiction in this story. Definitely, the story from Jack's point of view does have some weirdness in it, uh, looking at George Banway's steel mail that he's wearing under his blouse or shirt or whatever. To me, that's really the only element where it comes into play. I think from Jack's point of view, Jack is more willing to see supernatural or weirdness in this story than Solomon Cain is, who just kind of knows what's going on. But we pointed out in the recap also that there is the house, the gothic trope that Howard is leaning on with this decrepit mansion and uh, an eroded aristocracy and maybe a need to maintain power and wealth through brute force. And that isn't going so well. The times are changing Times are changing for the pirates. So there are elements of the story that are caught up with things that gothic horror, gothic romance, or weird fiction does eventually get to. But this story really reads more as a bit of pulp writing to me, a pulp adventure, where we, we have the serialized hero. He comes into town. He's really a knight errant doing God's work. And he's motivated to action through his own desires, his own need for vengeance, But it also happens to coincide with the main characters of the story. So in terms of genre, i put this more in the pulp adventure category than weird fiction. And I think that that's what Howard intends, at least in The Blue Flame of Vengeance. He's he's writing maybe a different kind of story than weird fiction or the way supernatural forces are at work in the world behind the scenes.
0: And I don't remember the other two Solomon Cain stories that I've, I've read well enough. One of them is the Hills of the Dead, which is the next one after this in the volume. So I've at least reread the first paragraph there. But I don't remember if there's a lot of other human characters there. I think my my memory, I mean, it's a very distant memory of having read these as a, a teenager, is really that it's Solomon Kane roaming the wildernesses of the world and finding evil creatures there and defeating them. And that's really what I thought that we were going to be in store for in this story. It's what I was uh, excited about, is what I was looking forward to, to getting. So we'll put some Solomon Kane stories on, a, on another ballot uh, sometime soon. But this story definitely—I mean, you just said knight errant. I mean, this definitely has the feel of a medieval high romance or an Arthurian romance, we might say, which is you know a little more specific. Though I think that is actually invoked here in the story, and this is really where I want to go next. I, I want to talk about this sort of intersection here of this story as an Arthurian romance, and then the presence of evil in the story, and and the doing of good, I guess, also in this story, and and the Arthurian is, is invoked. Howard invokes this directly when he has Fishhawk mockingly uh, call Solomon Cain Sir Galahad during their showdown in the cave. And so definitely just on the nose, right? Howard wants us to be thinking of Kane as a knight errant or, you know, paladin is sort of my preferred way of uh, of describing these people is just because, you know, I always try to think about D&D since I don't really get to play it very much anymore. But the, the question that I have about this really is whether Kane is actually really doing good in the world, right? This is a question we had last time as well, the the Jack Vance story, when Teseus in Turgeon of Mir said that ridding the world of evil people is doing good, even if the action that we're talking about is, is killing, which is something that we would not usually describe as being a good thing to do. And we did nod to that a little bit in the discussion at that episode, but we didn't really take it up in force. And in part, that was because I already knew we would be doing that here. I had read ahead on the schedule a little bit. And so that's what I want to do now. I want to ask whether Kane is really doing good in the world, or, or maybe, maybe to put it another way, right? The question is, is it morally good to kill killers or does killing killers just make you a killer? Does that just make you evil?
1: This is a question I thought a lot about since you brought it up in Turgeon of Mirror because I wasn't able to kind of put on my full uh,
0: philosophical
1: cap when we (laughs) were talking about it. And to me, it's not as much a crisis of ethics or moral problem as it is a storytelling question, as it is an engagement with tropes question, and whether we've worn them out as a society. uh, Chivalric romance stories are often written about or around or during times of conflict where people are at war. And the idea of romantic love really flourishes, I think, around wartime as, at least in the 20th century and leading up to it, men are often at war writing letters home to their loved ones and kind of using the love of a woman or loving a woman or a partner or whomever as a means or a reason to get back home to survive the conflict and it's a, it's a motivating factor romantic love is and we're stuck with these sort of stock characters then of the lover and the beloved the man is often the lover, so it's his duty to do whatever it takes to return home to shower love on the woman. The woman is often the beloved. And I think that's why we see the development of the trope, for instance, of, you know, fridging the woman, of putting a woman in peril so that the man is motivated to action, to take action in the world. And it's really a world that maintains the status quo. But the danger of that in my mind is rooted in the idea that if the male imagination or the male fantasy is about on some levels wanting to be admired for their strength, their ability to take action in the world, the types of responsibilities they're carrying and to be motivated by that through romantic love and for the best way to motivate the characters to action a male character typically is to have a woman in peril it kind of maintains this idea that in order for men to feel like valuable in the world, women have to be in peril and I think that 's where the real criticism of this type of trope comes in. I know i 'm not directly answering your question, but I will get around to it. I promise um, <laughs> that 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 's the real problem is whether or not stories should appeal to that value being placed on. Men uh, all the time, or if men need to think of women as the ones the audience for their acts of bravery or chivalry or courage or whatever, they, it kind of sidesteps the question of what is a good society? Does a good culture need to imagine a class of people or a group of people or a category of people in peril? Or in danger, in order to function, in order to spur on innovation, rightness, right action, like orthodoxy and orthopraxy? Are, are these the sorts of stories that we need to continue to perpetuate? Though they are great fun and they do offer us a mode of escapism or a mode of working out the sort of male and female psyche in these ways, um, why aren't there stories imagining a world at peace? Uh, and and what does peace look like for the gender norms of like male and female psychology? And those types of stories aren't really told. But this story is written, you know, fifteen years after World War One. It's in an interwar period. Uh, of course, Howard is not sitting here predicting World War Two. But a lot of the pulp and noir and hard boiled stories that blew up uh, in between World War One and World War II and then after World War II are looking at the fallout in some ways of men being valued for war, uh, using maybe romantic love as a motivation to get home and then coming home and not finding those structures in place for them to continue to act out uh, their modes of courage or any type of virtue and that society has changed, and the romantic love that spurred them to action isn't enough to sustain them when they're just at home. It's like the idea is better than the reality. And that's in the background of a lot of these popular genres that were blowing up in magazines and novels and being printed on cheap paper for mass consumption, um, is sort of this backdrop of war and conflict. And so it's not really questioned why these characters are okay killing other characters to eliminate evil in the world, but that's actually the meta narrative of the world of being on the right side of being favored by God, of of um, eliminating evil from the world, and it's it's a real problem I think for us today. Because that mode of storytelling, while it offers us an escape and maybe an appeal to uh, certain desires or certain modes of being valued by uh, beloved, um, when we're taking on the role of the lover, I don't know if we're in the same type of world where those stories work the way that they did in these periods of extraordinary war chaos, strife, etc. We don't have near the number of citizens at war right now. And so going back and reading these stories and looking at all the genres and tropes that were developed in chivalric romance, it's worth examining how the world has really changed and how the mores and norms have changed and whether or not this type of romantic love, these characters of the lover and beloved, are continually pointing us toward a peaceful society, if that's your definition of the good. I guess what I'm trying to say is these stories aren't examining what the nature of the good is. They're not looking at what an ideal world could be if we can be at peace with one another and live without violence. Um, there is, you know, There are evil people in the world. There are people who take advantage of others and act with uh, real malevolence, But this story, at least, is founded on a kind of petty injustice. And this guy, Jack, is carrying the burden of a uh, societal injustice of this class system and having one person really be an icon for that, that he's going to take all of his anger out on. That is not a good psychological state to be in. That is not a healthy attitude towards um, participating in a community or being in the world. And I think at some point, We have to wonder how these tropes function in society, if they are just maintaining a kind of status quo or if we can find a way to tell satisfying adventure stories or whatever that don't require women to be in peril. I think epic fantasy has actually gotten away from this a lot, but urban fantasy is still really caught up in these types of tropes
0: there's a lot to address in what you just said. So I'm going to I'm gonna pick apart a, a, a few things. I, I'm interested in the way that you're framing the chivalric hero as growing up in a world that is defined by war. I don't think that's right at all. I think that might be right for specifically these stories during the pulp years, which are essentially also overlapping with the inner war years where, yes, we're seeing this here in Howard. Uh, Batman also is an inner war hero, an inner war character. Uh, 1939 is when he debuts. So you know, not even a decade later than this. Also, we can think about hard-boiled detectives, my favorite genre. We've got Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler as well, but maybe especially Dashiell Hammett, who is definitely writing in the context of the First World War. And so certainly, we could look at all of those things: hard-boiled detectives, these types of action stories that. Howard is writing, and we could look at Conan this way, uh, call all of his heroes really this way, and then Batman and other comic book characters as well as being instances, as being versions of a chivalric hero that are historically interesting for the context of growing up after the First World War. But I don't think that that's a fair way to describe all chivalric heroes. The chivalric heroes themselves uh, really are a feature of 12th century literature, 12th century French literature, uh, specifically, that aren't really growing up in the context of war. We do tend to think of the high Middle Ages as being a period of endemic warfare, but that's not really uh, true. It's certainly not a good idea to think about 12th century military violence anywhere near the scale of 20th century or even 19th or 18th or 17th century military violence. That when we're talking about war in the 12th century, we're really talking about sports. We're talking about battles that involve the same number of people that are on like a football team or two football teams, you know, taking on each other and and that's about it. And it's also a, a normal part of society. It's a, it's something that's a it's part of the way that society functions where we think of wars as being an aberration even though actually it turns out they're really quite not. But we have this idea of peace meaning there's no war and then seeing war as the aberration. But that's not true for the context in which chivalric romance grew up in the the 12th century. I think the type of disorder that chivalric romances are speaking to in not just the 12th century, but the duration of the the Middle Ages, is is something else that you alluded to, Brandon, which is the malfunctioning of society. Not because there's war going on, but because something else is broken about the way society functions. And almost always, it's that the people on top of the pyramid aren't doing the things that they're supposed to be doing, which is to say, taking care of the the common people, the lower class people. Or you know, villains. Uh, villains here meaning like villagers, farmers, uh, regular people. Uh, complicated story. How that comes to mean bad guy. How the word for person who's a farmer comes to mean bad guy. <laughs> um, but which which is really interesting, of course. But but what they're really pointing to is that the social contract, or what we would call the social contract, is being broken, is not being maintained. We definitely see that here in this story, and in fact, that's. Precisely what Dashiell Hammett is writing about. It's it's about the social contract being broken. It's usually about government being too weak to do anything. It's about government being too weak to maintain the social order, to maintain the social contract. That is also what we see in a lot of these Arthurian romances. The king is ill or weak or. Uh, an idiot and is somehow not able to fulfill his functions and so requires external help in the form of a wandering hero. That is what's going on in hard-boiled detective stories. That's really what Batman is, right? The Gotham police just can't deal with what's going on in Gotham. So here's Batman to help out. And it is what we see here in this story as well, that the the magistrate, Rupert Darcy, is not able to maintain the peace. He's he's failing in his job there. The government is failing. And so uh, what's happening is that the haves, the aristocracy, or at least the gentry, is overstepping his bounds and oppressing the, the villagers. And there's nothing the villagers themselves can do about it if the state can't help them. And so here now we have the the wandering hero, the 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 knight errant, the chivalric knight come in, uh, the paladin as I like to say, come in and set things right. Uh, Though in this case, you know, setting things right simply by killing the immediate problem, not by actually maybe replacing Darcy with a better functioning administrator, better functioning magistrate, uh, giving everyone a good talking to about good government and civic responsibility. Right. The solution is just kill the immediate bad guy uh, rather than, of course, address systemic problems.
1: Yeah, that's really what we talked about a little bit in the recap, where. The villains of good action and adventure stories, at least in the past 30 years or so, are the ones who have the plan and are trying to drive some sort of change, whether it's for good or ill. But a, a well-defined villain will believe what they're doing is good or for the best. And it's, it's kind of the hero's job at that point to maintain the status quo or return things to right. And, and it's a real problem. Because the stories aren't addressing the issues that create a villain um though sometimes they'll <laughs> sometimes storytellers will find like cheap substitutes like child abuse or something like that to say like this is what formed them, and this is why they're deranged or feel like society is wrong uh, but it doesn't address the fact that like hey, maybe child abuse isn't being addressed enough in society, and these people are allowed to continue to function as long as they don't leave bruises or teachers don't find out and they learn how to hide from any type of mandated reporter of abuse. It's not looking at the way society is broken. And I'm not saying we need a massive police force or a massive bureaucratic state or anything like that. Um, it's just the, the stories rely on the idea that somebody else is really going to come and fix the problem. Um, and that that's what's fascinated me about this story, is that Jack doesn't really solve the problem. He thinks murdering George Banway is, is more of a symbolic act that's rooted in the injustices of this kind of class warfare that's taking place under the surface of the story, um, because George Banway can be a symbol for all of these evil aristocrats that are caught up in... Uh, you know, vice and bullying people and uh, working around the magistrate. But instead of uh, getting people together and petition the governor or whomever to get a new magistrate or whatever they need to do. Um, And and we also get a sense in the story that this town is open to smuggling and uh, vice because there's no harbor or no customs officials that are coming to really visit and make sure everything's okay. So it's it's the appearance of order breaks down really at the local level and that's what we're seeing happen in this story. And that's part of what this story is addressing as well. Those types of issues should be enough to like motivate a person to make changes in their world or community. <laughs> you don't need to threaten violence to women to take action. And and I think that's why People find the trope of fridging the woman so difficult to swallow now um, because there are enough problems that should motivate people to action that stumbling across the dead body of a woman, as we saw in in the the, uh, William Hope Hodgson story we, we recently covered, shouldn't be the thing that motivates a person who is able to take action to take action.
0: Right. The only reason that we need any of these heroes at all is because the system isn't working. That in an ideal world... No one would have to be Solomon Kane or Batman or uh, Philip Marlowe or, or Sam Spade or, or you know any of the or any of these other types of heroes, John McClane for that matter, right? That we'd all just be able to uh, go about our daily lives and spend as much time as we can at our book clubs or watching Netflix or going to Little League games, and we wouldn't need wandering paladins to come in and do violence to the people who are uh, oppressing us. So none of us should actually year- be yearning, right, to be these types of heroes and. Maybe that's a a totally different type of problem, though I know it's one that you're actually keenly interested in, Brandon, is sort of what do these stories do to us, maybe especially uh, kids who are reading them and and giving us this type of, of model. But I think there is also a type of story that goes the other way. And I think that we actually are living again in a society that very much feels that the system is broken and that things are not working for us. I mean, we we can really maybe only speak viscerally to the experience of being a politically aware American right now, but it does also seem to me that this is happening throughout Western Europe, the United Kingdom as, as well, this sort of clamor for something new, clamoring for someone, some outsider to come in and set the system right. I mean, this is what the the phrase drain the swamp is all about, for example, right? We, we're definitely clamoring for that, though we are not necessarily clamoring for Batman to come in and do this. But there is a sort of interesting parallel. And I do wonder about how these kind of impulses that our society is having now are going to show up in our adventure fiction at some point. And maybe they are now, and I'm just not reading enough contemporary stuff because we're reading all of these uh, 90-year-old stories here on, on Elder Side. but that would be a fun thing to check out. But I, I do want to shift us away from this a little bit. I mean, I know that anytime I ask a question, you're going to drag it to literary tropes. Anytime you ask me a question, I'm going to drag it to some kind of you know social history context because that's, that's what we do. <laughs> but I want to actually take a step back from really both the historical context and the literary tropes and really just ask this question from a, an abstract, philosophical way, which is, is it okay to kill people who are doing bad things? Or is that morally wrong? Would we think it's okay for our neighbors to go kill someone who is suspected of or even proven to uh, have abducted somebody? Would we think that that is morally right for individuals to uh, enact justice like this on their own? It's it's such a challenging question at this point
1: in our world because it requires a really robust theory of justice. I mean, we talked a little bit about this in Church and Amir. The classical definition of justice is to give each person their due. But this idea of personhood or what a person is, I think, has been really called into question. We don't have the societal institutions and infrastructure that guarantee that a, that a human being, or at least it's not the Automatic assumption that a human being is a divine being uh, in some way between beasts and angels that we don't we don't have a cosmology that supports the idea of personhood that this notion of justice really grew up around and I think that that is maybe the core breakdown of our of our society at this point is the the idea of personhood is really called into question. So without a sense of justice, without the idea that, listen, taking somebody's life is taking away all of this like divine potential. It is disrespecting um, the order of things because you are erasing the divine image of somebody from the world and you're removing all the hope and potential or what they could be or do. You're erasing a life, whether it's through this like traumatic kidnapping murder situation, or it's just murder, or you're violating something that somebody else has in order to have it for yourself. You're taking, um, I think it needs a theory of personhood. And I, and I think in this story, we do have a a theory of personhood, but I will say, I don't think it's, it's right to kill, to take another life because somebody's taken a life, um, I, I don't think that that's justice. I do think our society, a uh, Western civilization, um, you know, the the idea. I mean, we're not far from the uh, state penitentiary in Philadelphia. That whole idea of penitentiary is about allowing people to rehabilitate, to to live it with penitence and to reflect upon what led them or what caused them to act in that way. So I'm not convinced people going around and killing other people they think is evil is a solution to any sort of problem. Because we see in this story, we see in the speech at the end of the story, the exact sort of psychosis or pathology (laughs) that, that that... the road that that leads down, which is like, well, anybody who even now hurts an animal is 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 open <laughs> to being visited upon by my vengeance, and so it's a never-ending path. And at a certain point, you need abstract concepts like justice or like penitence, like repentance or. Hope for rehabilitation. You need these abstract concepts of a person and what a person can be in order to fill out some of these lines. Because somebody, you know, uh, you know that the the way this story ends, kind of imagine Solomon Kane uh, going into town and finding like a squirrel graveyard or something like that, and he's like, "Well, somebody (laughs) here needs to uh, be visited by my sword." So that is the path of that. Uh, vengeance of that righting wrongs. I think that when a person feels like they have that power and they're doing it for the good of others, there's no end to what they believe they can do or there's nobody telling them they're wrong.
0: I'm, I'm with you here. I think there are so many things that are wrong with this uh, with this approach, with the way that Solomon Cain is, is living his life, maybe the way Batman is living his life too. Well, there are a lot of things wrong with the way Batman is living his life, but I don't mean to, to speak to Bruce Wayne's particular uh, weird psychosis that he's got. We can, uh, I don't know, maybe start a Batman uh, podcast someday. We talk about Batman a lot here, but there are two things I want to address about what you just said. And the first is simply to say that this is an untenable System here, right? This is interesting in this story. This works in this story. It works in Batman. It works in Dashiell Hammett because we're really only following one person who's living this way. And that one person, this one paladin character, is the only person in society who is doing this. But if we were all doing this, or even if 10 of us, you know, 100 of us were doing this, it would be chaos because. What What is it that makes any of us, any one of us, any single one of us, or Solomon Kane, or Batman or Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe, what is it that lets these people be the arbiters of what is just and what is not, of what is right and what is wrong, what deserves killing and what doesn't, what actions merit being killed and which actions do not, right? This should not be the type of decision that just one individual gets to make without any kind of check on, on that person. But that is the society that we're, that that is what we're looking at in stories like this. And we are romanticizing this one person who takes it upon himself to enact justice in a world that is unjust. And that's not really a good system, right? What we want is a community to come together, agree upon the rules, agree upon how the rules are going to be enforced, and then everyone live that way and hopefully actually never have to enforce the rules because everyone is following them because we've all agreed on them, right? That's the right. That's the good in the world that we're all longing for. And if we're all doing this, if we're all going around killing people that we think have done wrong in the world uh, by just without running that decision, without running that judgment by someone else, then we're the problem in the world. Right. And we see that in the story where
1: Dick Rendell, who was Jack's second in the duel, is like, all this guy did was insult your beloved and you've thrown wine on his face. You slapped him. You overturned a table. You kicked him while he was down. And Jack is like, it's still not enough. It's still not enough, uh, and that's the idea that Howard is looking at, maybe unreflectively, is that at what at what point is an insult or somebody saying something mean or cruel an injustice that makes us want to kill them? I don't think Howard's like reflectively looking at the culture of dueling and what that was all about, um, but duels were a way to get satisfaction over insults and we've done away with that because it's insane and most of those guns were like super inaccurate like didn't really hurt it (laughs) didn't hurt anybody people did die in duels but like you couldn't duel with pistols today you know um and once you begin to gnaw on the idea that you've been wronged um that can carry you forever and and Solomon Kane doesn't even need to be wronged at this point he just needs to know that somebody or something is wronged for him to take action and he's like the next level of this type of pathology.
0: Right. I'm just envisioning Solomon Kane sort of scouring the internet, looking for people complaining about other people who have wronged them. And then there's some story about Solomon Kane showing up at a grade school to kill some third grader for calling another third grader a name, right? There's no scale here for Solomon Cain either, I don't think. but it will be interesting to look at more of these stories. I I, I do actually want to go back through his speech, but I also want to say one more thing to, to your points before we move on to, to that phase of the discussion, which is what will, will bring us. Home and lay this story to rest, which is that a lot of my moral philosophy was developed in tandem with reading a lot of fantasy literature uh, but it wasn't this type of fantasy literature or, the, or you know the, or Howard's brand of fantasy literature maybe we should say and that i think that there is a compelling and uh, excellent contrast to this in the lord of the rings in in chapter 2 of the fellowship of the ring when uh, gandalf and frodo are are talking it's it's mostly gandalf talking it's like just a I, I don't know a 90 page gandalf monologue basically and it's my favorite thing in all of literature but this is when Frodo is talking about why they didn't kill Gollum when they found him, why Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he found him, and then later, why Aragorn didn't kill Gollum when he found him. And, And Gandalf says, many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, right? And of course, the idea here is that we don't get to have the power of life and death over other people, and certainly not in moral judgment on others. Tolkien, of course, writing this from a you know a particular uh, Catholic Christian point of view, uh, something we spent a lot of time thinking about on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, but I, I think that that's the world that I want to live in, not the world of Solomon Cain.
1: Absolutely. And I think because a lot of epic fantasy has sprouted from the soil of Tolkien, it doesn't have the same tropes as the stories that came from pulp novels and hardboiled detective stories and noir uh, novels as well. At least noir novels are super critical of their protagonists because they're all lost and kind of bad guys trying to trying to make it in a world that's sort of left them behind. Uh, I'm a huge fan of noir, maybe over hardboiled detective fiction, though. I love though I love all of it. But that's to the point I was trying to make before that in a lot of epic fantasy, uh, which I've really slowed down reading a lot of, the tropes of fridging the women aren't there because the protagonists are often called to action by some sort of higher calling. And maybe you do need some sort of peril to get them going, like you know Luke Skywalker's aunt and uncle <laughs> being killed at the, at the hydration farm or something like that. Um but it's not the same level of needing your hero to have had a human being taken away from him in order to compel him to action and and that sort of subliminally treats that human who's been taken away as an object and then an excuse for violence and and it really appeals to the idea that what we really want is to live in a Unstable and chaotic world. So we're just waiting for an excuse to be violent. We almost want there to be villains. We almost want there to be evil people so that we can be violent the way we imagine and demonstrate our heroism instead of imagining a world where being charitable and being loving and being kind to other people and building a society and doing hard labor maybe in order to build that is preferable to. Imagining the the hero fantasy of imagining yourself as Solomon Kane in the in this story, or as Conan in another story, or as any any type of genre fiction where the character needs to be motivated by a person as object being in peril, or the threat is there that they're going to be taken away from them.
0: Right. We should all be trying to live in the Shire. That's that's the world we should be trying to live in. And if we have to be a hero, we should aspire to be Frodo, not Solomon Kane or. Conan or, or Batman or any of the other people that we've named here. Even, even Angel, who we haven't mentioned on this episode, but maybe we will in a moment. But but that's who we should aspire to be when heroes are called for. Someone who is not a hero by vocation, a hero by aspiration, and some, someone who does it in order to preserve the lives of people, not in order to satiate a desire to take the lives of, of people. But I will move us on from the heaviness of, of this way of approaching this. And I want to actually take us back to the, the text, because I, I want to talk about what Cain says his mission is, the way that Cain conceives of what he's doing here. And then I'll have a few questions about this. Though 90%, maybe 95% of throwing this on my outline as a discussion topic is really just because I want to read the speech at the end. You got to read it in the recap. <laughs> and now I want to read it. Uh, so I am going to read it here, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. I am a landless man. I come out of the sunset, and into the sunrise I go, wherever the Lord doth guide my feet. I seek my soul's salvation, mayhap. I came following the trail of vengeance. Now I must leave you. The dawn is not far away, and I would not have it find me idle. It may be I shall see you no more. My work here is done. The long red trail is ended. The man of blood is dead. But there be other men of blood, and other trails of revenge and retribution. I work the will of God. While evil flourishes and wrongs grow rank, while men are persecuted and women wronged, while weak things, human or animal, are maltreated, there is no rest for me beneath the skies, nor peace at any board or bed. Farewell. And so I I just want to go through, I mean, this is a beautiful speech, but I want to go through some of the imagery that he's using here, or really some of the claims that he's making to try to understand what it is that he thinks his mission is on, right? So the, the first thing that really jumps out at me is, is, What he thinks he's doing in the world, right? And he says clearly, I work the will of God. And, you know, I have to wonder if it is the will of God that uh, the way that society should function is that individual people have to go around killing other people people. I don't think that's actually the will of God. I don't think we really get anything in scripture that suggests that that's the way to do things. In fact, I think we have a whole lot of uh, the first five books of the Old Testament that suggest there's a whole other way of doing things that God would like. But do you have any thoughts about this, Brandon?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny to me, this idea of I work the will of God and and associating that with vengeance. I mean, there's a passage in the New Testament where people are discouraged from thinking this way entirely. Uh, Not just Christ's command to turn the other cheek uh, but also uh, a phrase vengeance is mine says the Lord and it's it's up to God to distribute his judgment not up to people to do it and there are countless parables uh, that Jesus tells in the New Testament like you know the par- parable of the workers in the vineyard which deals with uh, income and the dispensing of wealth and and gifts um, where the worker who shows up at the 11th hour gets the same wages as the people who've been working all day. And everybody's super miffed about that. And it's just because everything is God's anyway, God can just distribute it however he wants. This is also a big part of the prodigal son. Uh, this this is the main theme of Jesus's teachings is that like you walk through the world, you can absorb wrongdoing. Uh, martyrdom was a big part of early Christianity as well. Uh, even, and, and this all goes back to the idea of personhood of having a, a soul and of being willing to die as an example of what the world should be, of uh, according to your beliefs, and and not kill others uh, as and and let others take advantage of you if if that is what they need to recognize their own. Divine humanity and nature, because the people who do wrong, who have consciences, will eventually struggle with doing wrong. So that's one part. But the other part is Solomon Cain, when he's quoting scripture and Macbeth the part of scripture that he's quoting is talking is is Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This is always read at weddings. Um, This is, this is uh, the famous two Corinthians passage that uh, is Trump's (laughs) favorite passage as well when asked about the Bible. Um, But it's, it's saying that to do all this, to have any action, to speak words to another person, um, to take action in the world without love is to be uh, a clanging symbol is to just contribute to chaos or cacophony in some way, and then that passage goes on to describe what love is it is you know it's patient it's it's kind it's merciful it's graceful all, all these sorts of attributes of acting in love in the world, and solomon kane's speech here at the end for someone who has. Uh, read enough of the Bible to be quoting it in the 17th century, who's a Puritan,
0: um, seems to be missing the point here a little bit. We should take stock of the fact, too, as well, that Solomon Cain kills a bunch of people in this story. And I've been, I think, largely gravitating towards the manner in which he kills the fishhawk, who's his main target here, where he even talks about being full of hate and is clearly angry and passionate. He's killing the fishhawk out of personal emotions, out of intense personal emotions, but we do then get him killing Sir George as well. And that does to seem to be something that he's doing almost reluctantly. Like he does actually think that if the world were perfect, he wouldn't have to do this. And this is something he's doing merely as the instrument of something else. Uh, clearly he thinks it's, you know, he's the instrument of God here. In fact, maybe in some ways thinks of himself as a prophet, right? In in the way that, that Christ or, or Moses, other people we've invoked here are right in the sense of working the will of God, right? That God is working through him. He's carrying out God's work on earth. But there's another part of this speech that I find really interesting here and in thinking about what is it that Cain is up to and why is he up to it Where he says that he's seeking something, he says, "I seek." Then there's some ellipses, right? He pauses here. He says, "I seek," and then he pauses, and he doesn't finish that sentence the way he started it, or maybe he didn't know how he was going to finish that sentence when he started it. But after this pause, he says, "Maybe it's my soul salvation. I'm seeking something. Maybe it's my soul salvation." So he might not really know what he's up to is one thing there. But even if we take this literally, or we just take this at face value and say that what he is doing here is questing after the salvation of his soul. In what way is this accomplishing that, do you think? I really don't know. This is, this is a confused notion, I think, for
1: Solomon Cain. In his introduction to this story, we learned that he has done some maybe really unsavory things or engaged in underhanded tactics in order to win a battle in France where he was a a captain. Um, and that he, that, that action has rocked him when he kills George Banway. He says, you know, it'll be up to God to determine whether or not what I've done is right. I think he's going about seeking his soul salvation the wrong way. I think that this idea works much better if you're killing demons and supernatural creatures or something like that like in like in supernatural or an angel also for instance, um, but it doesn't quite work when you're killing people as being representative of an abstract idea I mean this is a, a problem in our society today where people approach an individual as a representative of a group, and then can decide whether or not to treat with them fairly. And I think this is kind of Kane's attitude as well. It's it's this idea that uh, all evildoers represent this presence of evil in the world, and to eliminate them materially means you'll eliminate evil for good. And that he thinks it's his job that's the work god gave him to do and if he does it good he will have salvation and um he will be i don't know admitted to heaven perhaps or admitted into the presence of god after all the wrong he's done or whatever baggage he's carrying um and to me this this idea again that an individual is purely a representative of a group ideal or a representing the negative traits of a group is not really treating fairly with with others. And this is what Solomon Cain is out doing. It's like cancel culture online. Well, this person (laughs) can't write this because they're not such and such. Um, It's it's that idea. And I think we see these kind of roving bands of people on the internet today who have this same sort of uh, vengeance-driven mindset and believe they're doing good by eliminating material representatives of an idea rather than trying to engage with those people and maybe tell them that they think their ideas are bad or uh, that they want to continue a conversation and see how they can address those ideas rather than having a material, a person being a material, I don't know, incident of an idea. And it's, it's a very muddled mindset. And Howard has it here at the end of this uh, Solomon Kane story
0: muddled I think is the best way to d- describe this monologue a monologue that I think is really awesome I think it's extraordinarily well written and is obviously a great idea for a character I'm just not sure I I'm just not sure that the way it's executed in this story is the best way to execute it I we, we have invoked many times I think more in the recap than this episode though you just brought it up I, I think angel actually is the epitome of this mission statement here I think that angel uh, you know I don't know that the, the creators of angel ever read the this particular story, read this particular monologue, but Angel is a better embodiment of this monologue than Solomon Cain is. And I think it would be a lot of fun for us to go do an Angel episode someday, and and, and especially to think about it in the context of this mission statement, though I, I don't know how or when we will ever get around to being able to do something like that. But I think that would be a, a lot of fun. And I'm really glad that we read this story. I'm looking forward to doing more Solomon Cain stories. I definitely want to get to at least one Solomon Kane story someday that has an actual weird fiction, actual supernatural uh, element to it and, and and we may feel very differently about Solomon Kane when he's fighting zombies than we do when he's fighting pirates and uh, the you know local gentry and uh, and that'll be fun to, to compare to as well
1: yeah I really couldn't agree more. the best angel episode I think that we would that we could cover uh, in comparison to this story is the one when he gets dredged up from the lake or wherever and comes back and, and puts Connor in his place and and that has that mission statement and we can kind of compare those mission statements and, and what these guys think they're doing in the world to one another.
0: Well, I think now that we are planning uh, yet another podcast for the network to do, an angel podcast, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects,
1: as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums or our new subreddit, which is Clay Temple Media, and let us know what you thought of our discussion of the Blue Flame of Vengeance. I would love to hear your thoughts uh, as listeners about this kind of problem in storytelling that I've brought up. Uh, It's something that's on my mind a lot as I'm trying to kind of craft fun stories and not be laden down by tropes that don't work. So, Love to hear your thoughts on that and, and what works or didn't work for you in this story. We didn't really talk about craft at all in the discussion portion though we brought it up a little in the recap. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you might fix the problems in this story, the narrative problems, if you see any.
0: I would also love to talk about other contemporary or, or 20th century knight errants, chivalric heroes, paladins, whatever you would like to call them. I'd like to talk them. I would love to hear about other incarnations of these types of characters who you think do a better job, maybe, of actually fulfilling the mission statement that uh, that Solomon Kane has here at the end. And if you'd like to support the show and have a chance to vote on what we cover, then please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Next time, we'll be back with the first of two episodes on yet another novella. This is going to be our return to Caitlin R. Kiernan, something I'm very excited about. This is the story Houses Under the Sea. Until then, we greet you and say farewell.